0: Welcome to Religion and Global Challenges, the podcast of the Cambridge Interfaith Programme brought to you by myself, Malena Schäfes. In this episode, we continue our exploration of how climate change and ecology relate in myriad ways to religion and spirituality. To do so, I'm joined today by two guests. First, we have Dr. Hjordis Becker-Lindenthal, who is a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow, and affiliated lecturer at the Faculty of Divinity at the University of Cambridge and who has done extensive research on the philosophy of religion, in particular, Søren Kierkegaard and medieval mysticism.
1: In order to save the planet and survive as a species,
0: the world as we know it actually needs to end. And my second guest is Dr. Simone Kotva, Research Fellow at the Faculty of Theology at the University of Oslo, an affiliated lecturer at Cambridge's Faculty of Divinity. Her research focuses on the intersection of philosophy, theology, and earth ethics.
2: Because apocalyptical texts are not just about the world ending and kind of mongering fear, but about really paying attention to the present that we have and showing the kind of consequences of our desires.
0: Let me begin then by noticing that we really live in a world where the prospect of mass extinction has become very real, in the sense that every day we encounter news about yet another species that has gone extinct, and we hear about rising sea levels, expanding deserts and proliferating droughts. So it easily appears like the end of the world is near in many ways. To what extent would you say that these kinds of ideas about the end of the world are shaped by Christian imaginaries about the apocalypse or the Day of Judgment?
1: I think this is a very good question. In fact, the idea of an end of the world is as old as humankind. We find tales about it in all cultures, for instance, in the Hindu Bhagavad Gita on the Old Norse story of Ragnarok in the Edda. And interestingly, these narratives, including the Christian one, are not about the end of the world, but about the end of the world, that is, the end of an era. The all-destroying natural disasters, um, usually accompanied by a battle of gods, semi-gods, mythological creatures, or angels and demons, um, often are the necessary preparation of a new, better world that is about to come. In the Abrahamic religions, the end of the world is also frequently associated with the judgment day, in which everyone is held accountable for the way they led their lives. And maybe this is one of the attractions of understanding the current climate crisis in biblical terms, because we we know that we have wronged in our relation to the planet, and most of us continue to live unsustainable lives. In addition, these traditional narratives and images help us to to, to make sense of an otherwise totally overwhelming, unprecedented situation. So, no wonder that they keep reoccurring in, in popular culture. Think, for instance, of Terry Pratchett's and Neil Gaiman's novel Good Omens and its recent screen adaptation. One of the four horsemen or rather bikers of the apocalypse next to war famine and death is called pollution um, but resorting to traditional narratives of course um, also offers some comfort some assurance in catastrophic time it is the yeah, familiar in the unfamiliar one could maybe even say and sometimes there even is a kind of um morbid fascination with our punishment and uh, with the end um, of the world involved. However, what is easily forgotten is that there is a new world supposed to come after the apocalypse in most of this narrative, so also the threat of a looming end of the world that we are currently experiencing, so the death of various species, including the possible extinction of the human race, so this um, might be turned into a chance, or could be turned into a chance of a new world, in order to save the planet and survive as a species. The world as we know it—that is, our ways of over-consumptive, exploitative
0: living—actually needs to end. Simone, would you agree with this that the end of the world is necessary? This is a really good opening question. cuts
2: straight to the chase of the discussion really. And I'm reminded of one of the most controversial concepts associated with this idea of resorting to traditional narratives in relation to the end of the world, and also kind of theology's relationship to these narratives, and that's apocalypse, apocalypticism. Um, There was a really influential article written in the early, around the early 2000s, if it wasn't 2000, by a literary uh, critic called Greg Gerard, and it's on apocalypticism and the biblical uh, tradition in relation to environmentalism and this has become a really influential narrative because it takes uh, quite a negative stance towards this tradition arguing that there are two different modes in which um, the biblical tradition presents uh, apocalypse comic and tragic so the comic one is where we imagine a a positive new world uh, coming out of the ashes and ruins of of the present world and the tragic mode was sort of everything just kind of disappears and as an annihilated Um, and he argues that both of these modes uh, are really prevalent in shaping environmental discourse and that both are basically counterproductive and that uh, they distract Attention from the present, this is his big argument, so apocalypticism and uh, biblical narratives of the end of the world for Gerard are ways in which to not do environmentalism well so this is really fascinating, I think, uh, as a criticism, not least because it it seems to equate biblical apocalyptic narratives with the end of the world which as Yodis was saying, isn't quite the case when you look closer at these narratives and what they're about. The theme of an ending of the world is there, but it's not really the motivation of these texts. These texts are motivated by the desire to be attentive to the world as it is, and to understand what's at stake with the present. There's been a really interesting recent book written on this by Catherine Keller called Facing Apocalypse, Climate, Democracy and Other Last Chances, which came out just 2020, I think, 2021 even um, last year. And Keller makes a really good argument for saying that the critique of apocalypticism as bad theology shaping environmentalism is perhaps somewhat wrong-footed in relation to the tradition. Because apocalyptical texts are not just about the world ending and kind of mongering fear in relation to that, uh, but about really paying attention to the present that we have and showing the kind of consequences of our desires and how they act out. And I think one thing that is not often attended to is the role played by attention itself in these narratives of the end of the world. So one of my favorite texts to think about in relation to these narratives is the Apocalypse of Enoch, um, which is a text that is is pseudoepigraphical. So it's um, not in the Bible, but it's in the biblical tradition. And it's a really long narrative where Enoch lives in the biblical narrative before the flood he's shown how the flood is going to happen and then what's going to happen later in the thousand year reign of the Messiah. But what's really interesting here is that most of the book is not taken up with an obsessive account of the end of the world it's taken up with this voyage that uh, Enoch undertakes through earth, where he gets to see like how everything is made, how dewdrops are formed It's kind of natural history of the world and so these narratives of endings and cataclysmic convulsions they're almost peripheral they're almost like stage props they're there to kind of pull you in but the real interest is in the present and you actually get something similar in the most famous apocalyptic text which is the book of revelation where you have the scenes that everybody remembers of like fire and brimstone but you have a lot of other descriptions in that text woven into them sort of subtle ones which are all about just like look at the world we have and look at the state of it And so I think that the apocalyptic traditions that you have, not just, of course, in Christianity and Judaism and Islam, but in all sorts of uh, religious and spiritual traditions are very much about using storytelling to attune ourselves to the present. And I think that's something which is often forgotten. So, yeah, it does shape environmentalism and it has shaped it negatively through millenarianism, through a kind of overemphasis on that the world is going to end. But it's also shaped it in many ways which are indispensable to environmentalism, i.e. in the attentiveness that we show to the present by kind of retelling stories about its possible ending. And also, of course, in what Yodis is talking about in uh, using the story of the ending of a world to think more constructively about how we want to live in the present.
0: That's super fascinating. Um, I was not aware of the the attention towards the present that's actually really put forward by these kind of apocalyptic narratives. And this links to my next question, which is precisely about this question of attention within um, environmentalism and envir- environmentalist movements that you already brought up. In a lot of environmentalist discourse, we see that there's this call for precisely what you were just saying, a kind of a different kind of attention towards the environment, a more perhaps spiritual form of engaging with the environment. And so Simone, could you maybe elaborate a little bit on what you think is actually intended here when people talk about, environmentalists talk about a shift in attention towards non-human species, toward that which surrounds us, um, and what might be the consequences of developing different forms of attention?
2: Yeah, I can think of a number of different things. So first of all, there is this sense that what we need to shift in order to um, live sustainably and regeneratively um, across species and across cultures and religions is more attentiveness to what is not within my kind of personal sphere, right? And this is a theme that comes up a lot and it's presented as the, the hard problem, as it were. The idea is that there is a there are spiritual roots to the ecological crisis, which is a kind of a different take on the Lynn White thesis, which is an interesting and very influential criticism of Christian theology, which argues that Christian theology is the at the roots of the destruction of the environment. Right. So this was a thesis that was put forward in the 1960s so what we're seeing today is a shift in a somewhat opposite direction which is this sense that a lack in awareness of the the thinking the beliefs and values that shape uh, our habits of consumption like how that works what is the mechanics of it and so people are turning to ancient pre-modern non-western traditions of spirituality that have focused on precisely kind of reforming our habits of consumption and our mode of relating to our environment, to other people, to other creatures, to other ideas, uh, and so on. So that's kind of why there is this Emphasis on needing to be more attentive. And you see it both in religious writers who talk about it a lot, but you also see it in non theological writers, writers who are not at all particularly interested or even positively inclined towards religion. So I think here's a really important meeting point and convergence between apparently disparate disciplines but also like groups cultures and also age groups right so this is often referred to as like spirituality spiritual exercise and spiritual practice Uh, and I think what it comes down to are these practices of attentiveness and what's often discussed kind of technically if you like um, when it comes to attention is a distinction between paying attention and being attentive and this is something that is is really important in a lot of spiritual traditions So on the one hand, you have an attitude which is all about focusing on something in order to understand how it works, which is what we associate with, I guess, modern science in the West. And that's a bit different from what uh, environmentalists are talking about when they say attentiveness, and especially when eco-theologians talk about attentiveness. They're thinking about more of a a state of being, a, a sort of attitude, a composure, attention isn't in this context isn't something you do but something that you are you are attentive rather than doing the act of of paying attention Um, and that's the distinction which environmental thinkers are trying to get across a lot there was a really good book recently translated into english called the ecology of attention by uh, a Frenchman whose surname, I'm probably mispronouncing, Citon, uh, recently translated by Policy Press, which talks about this a lot, that attention itself is a kind of ecology. And so what's interesting about all of this, just to sum up, is that it's much less about telling you what to do, and more about telling you, suggesting how to act. So mm-hmm. it, it's if environmental ethics during the 80s and 90s, say, was very uh, focused on sort of, giving guidelines on what to do, how to recycle well and kind of take care of your soil and your compost and so on. These are really valuable things. There's now more emphasis on those spiritual, if you like, practices that enable and make possible the desire to do those things that were focused on in the 80s and 90s in the literature, um, which I think is a really important shift. It doesn't mean that where we are now is a kind of better discourse at all, but it, it shows that perhaps we were kind of over eager and ambitious with the discourse in the 80s and 90s. And so now we're trying to take a step back to look at what are the prerequisites for wanting to do those environmental things well? What does it take in kind of ethical terms to become a kind of person who would recycle, who would compost, who would learn about their localities and get engaged in like local sewerage, for instance?
0: Obviously, we, when we talk about climate change, we often look at The big societal consequences of increasing numbers of devastating floods, hurricanes, droughts, um, all these scientific predictions of imminent climate change are often discussed on a very broad demographic societal level. But there are, of course, also personal and psychological consequences. So more and more people talk about the eco-anxiety and the climate despair that we can see, especially amongst young people, for instance, um, but we've also all probably heard about the appeal of climate change denialism. There's then also the turn to very intensive activism, which might be seen also as another psychological, personal or sub- subjective consequence in response to the kind of climate change scenarios that we are confronted with. So here it is if I may turn to you and ask, in this context of fear and despair that is connected to these contemporary end of world scenarios, What can we learn from Christian traditions or religious traditions, perhaps more broadly?
1: Oh, this is a a very um, important uh, point, Climate Despair, Marlene. Thank you so much for for bringing this up. So when it comes to despair, a very helpful um, conversation partner is the Danish uh, 19th century philosopher and theologian, Søren Kierkegaard. So in his book, uh, The Sickness Unto Death from 1849, uh, he defines the human soul as involving a relationship of opposites, among them necessity and uh, possibility, and he very convincingly argues that we fall into an all-consuming existential despair if we are not able to find a Balance between necessity and possibility—that is, a a balance between the deterministic or fatalistic worldview and the life of um, daydreaming um, that only plays with the myriad of possibilities without um, actualizing any of them. The latter, the despair of possibility, can arise of the many um, resolutions. We make to reduce our carbon footprint, so like never um, to, to fly anymore, boycott fast fashion brands, boy, become vegan, get rid of the cargo, 100% plastic free and, and so on. But very often we do not follow through with these um, imagined very good um, possibilities um, or very helpful possibilities to actually save the planet and then just remain fantasies turning us into despairing climate action procrastinators. And then um, if we um, continue to look um at Kierkegaard's um analysis of despair, there is this um the opposite, which is the despair of necessity, which is the perceived lack of possibility in one's life. And this form of despair probably represents what is most commonly associated with with climate despair. That is the paralyzing belief that whatever we do, either as collective or as individuals, it will not have a mitigating effect on global warming. But um, we, of course, know, and as you have mentioned, Marlene, there are also um, people who are unable or unwilling to accept that any drastic uh, changes might happen and Kierkegaard calls um, these persons the Spitzburgers or the uh, bourgeois who live within a certain trivial compendium of expectations as how do things go and um, as how to um, yeah what, what what usually happens and um, I think it, uh, this is a pretty good description of what is actually going on in climate change uh, denialism. Well, so you now you're probably burning to know um, what Kierkegaard's recommendation is to actually cure despair. For Kierkegaard, um, the cure is simply um, humble faith. So it is the belief that we are meant to continuously strive to actualize some possibilities. So this is our sort of God-given path to keep the balance and um, thus improving the world, but at the same time, never forgetting to know our place in the hierarchy of being, We cannot control possibility This is something that Kikigo stresses again and again. And we cannot fully anticipate, and we should also not fully anticipate every outcome, because it is God for whom everything is possible at any moment. And we cannot get into the mind of God.
0: Now, I guess this could sound to somebody as being somewhat fatalistic, you know, sort of saying, we just have to have faith. But does Kierkegaard also encourage us to develop some sort of more active hope in these current times?
1: Oh, yes, um, absolutely. So, for Kierkegaard, hope um, precisely arises um, out of a, resort, a restored sense of possibility. So he distinguishes um, authentic or true hope from what he calls the merely human manner of speaking about hope, which is kind of a longing expectation first for uh, this thing and then for another thing. Um, so this is a kind of um, hope for what we think is best for us. So and by contrast, true hope relates to the fullness of a divine, of a divine potential, one could maybe say. There is a, a kind of um, a distinction made by Jürgen Moltmann between Futurum and uh, future, or in German Zukunft. And this is a distinction between Futurum and Zukunft, I think is um, is helpful here to shed light on um, Kierkegaard's difference between true hope and um, its mere shadow. Whereas Futurum is extrapolated from our experiences of the past and the present future associated with with the the radically new, with parousia, with the second coming of Christ, or with adventus, um, what um, says. And in a similar vein, Kierkegaard defines true hope as relating oneself in expectancy to the possibility of the good. One one could also maybe um, refer to the um, philosopher Sylvia Walsh, who um, summed it up very nicely when she said that such um, kind of radically hope that is not sort of focusing on particular um, wishes and ideas of what might be needed for oneself in a particular time, such radical hope is um, a gift of the Holy Spirit that recognizes the limits of one's um, imaginative capacity, qua finite creature. And um, in a way, um, it is a um, kind of hoping against all hope, hope that transcends our cognitive and imaginative capacities and also the horizon of um, collective
0: memory. But if this kind of radical hopes is about, goes beyond that which we can imagine and that which we can understand, doesn't that then mean that one's actions are irrelevant and that all one has to do is sort of blindly trust that this divine miracle will happen; that hope will become true, um, and in this case, then would stop global warming.
1: Yeah, I, I can understand uh, where you where you come from, but I don't think that um, eschatological hope uh, necessarily renders human action irrelevant. Uh, rather, um, to the contrary, I would say because the experience um, of losing our all two human hopes can have um, a liberating effect. Like this, we are relieved of the burden to bring about the future at large. And once we abstain from the desire to want to know um, for sure what the long-term future will hold, we can then just focus on today. Pretty much like uh, like Simone has suggested um, when it comes to being attentive, we we just need to focus on the present and on today, and maybe also on tomorrow. So steadily working, um, towards or for particular futures without being pr- crushed by the by the worries whether um, or not we will um, succeed to bring them about. And Kierkegaard called such attitude um, humble courage. And I think this kind of humble courage is exactly what we need today as a virtue because what matters in humble courage is that one continuously tries to realize the good in small actions and habits day by day, again and again, without, Being paralyzed by the uncertainty of the future at large.
0: So what we observe, as Simone outlined, these, you know, the environmentalist movement always or often calls for a more attentive relation towards the present and towards that which surrounds us. But at the same time, these kind of habits, as you just said, um, small actions and habits that we do day by day, they're often also focused not just on being more attentive, but they're also focused on the fact that we need to somehow cut back on our consumption and lead a more austere lifestyle. So, you know, take the bike instead of driving with a car to work or, you know, foregoing that planned holiday of a Christmas where you are planning to fly to a warm holiday destination in the midst of winter or, you know, the call to no longer consume certain types of food because they are bad for the environment. And so I was wondering, here this. Do you see in these calls a reverberation perhaps of Christian forms or other religious forms of asceticism? And if that is actually the case, what can we learn perhaps from these ascetic traditions?
1: Excellent question. So, commonly, asceticism is understood as abstinence and renunciation of physical indulgence, in short, as something for which. We automatically you shy away because you think we are sacrificing something, uh, that we are giving up something good. But the long tradition of Christian asceticism is grounded in a a, a very complex and and then a hopeful theological anthropology. And it understands abstinence in this larger context as a way to die to our sinful self. That is uh, to a self that we are not meant to be And this has been most prominently explored in the famous spiritual manual, The Letter of Divine Essence, which um, has been written circa, I think, uh, 600 um, CE by John Climacus, who was a monk of the Egyptian desert. And such asceticism like Climacus's, aims at the core of our very being and not just at a few um, habits. So the ascetic actually works on restoring the self that she is supposed to be, and that is an image of God. This implies that, in fact, um, the ascetic actually does herself a favor rather than giving up something good. She is receiving something good. She is receiving herself again, one could maybe say. Now, um, how does this relate to the various lifestyle changes we need to make in relation to climate change, one might ask? Through offering exercise in dying to the perception of the natural world as a warehouse of goods, which we use to satisfy the needs of overconsumption, traditional Christian ascetism actually um, could inspire us to save the planet and also um, at the same time to become better versions of ourselves.
0: Simone, I feel this might bring us back to the question of attention or, you know, this question of what's the spiritual heart of environmentalism and, you know, what does it mean when we are called upon to sacrifice um, in the name of the environment, to save the environment? What are your thoughts on this?
2: I guess I'm inclined to think that attention here has to work in at least a twofold way. So on the one hand, there is a call to be more attentive. Now this is something which we can see has spiritual roots. And if we're looking just at the West could say that well, Christianity is the spiritual tradition par excellence, which has argued consistently throughout centuries that there is a spiritual life which consists in this kind of open receptivity towards not only god but creatures this idea that you learn about the creator from studying the book of nature that hospitality to your uh, fellow human beings as well as plants and animals is is essentially like the christic path right that's an argument that's made a lot has been made a lot and we have pope francis now who's arguing this and trying to embody a kind of second saint francis on the other hand though If we take this uh, call to spiritual attentiveness seriously, it also has to um, issue in a self-reflectivity on the tradition making the claim. So if we're thinking about the West again, which is where I am, where we are in this conversation, although Christianity has been the kind of matrix of spiritual traditions arguing for this kind of attentiveness, Christianity as an institution has also conspired directly and indirectly in colonialism and uh, extractive ecologies, extractive cultures and really violent gestures and in preparing the conditions that made ecological disaster possible, right. So when I think about attention, I think of it both in terms of a spiritual exercise that has a kind of historical lineage that it's important to recover, but also it as a, a kind of critical exercise. So we can't naively kind of go back to, and this is something that Yerdis and I talk a lot about, it's not about naively going back to John Climacus saying, let's live like that. Um, it's about seeing how the tradition of spiritual exercise has conspired with an anti-ecological kind of politics, right? And that brings me to the kind of real, I think the, Uh, what's at stake with attention is precisely this ability to be open to the ambiguities and to dither. I mean, I know that uh, the Anthropocene has been nicknamed the kind of the age of the great dithering when we did nothing and so on, but there is a kind of uh, a virtue to dithering in the sense that many of the catastrophic Uh, events that are happening at the moment are the result of making really big grand gestures and decisions right a kind of either or thinking and that a more careful and attentive way of of approaching the situations that we have in the world is about not looking for absolute solutions and absolute claims and uh, to be more present to the kind of pluralities of these situations and so attentiveness is not solution oriented thinking, which may seem contradictory when it comes to something like environmentalism, where it's always about like, how can we save? How can we find the solution? The solution is not to be tempted by the idea that there is one solution. And that is precisely what spiritual traditions usually emphasize, right? That being attentive and open means living in a present that you accept as the present. That idea of acceptance can often have quite a kind of apathetic ring to it, as if you sort of just cultivate this dispassionate attitude, Um, but it's really much more about being able to be with it and be attentive to it as it is for what it is. Timothy Morton, who's a very popular environmental philosopher, talks about this a lot. He talks about it as just the ability to kind of say hello to the world for what it is, not wanting it to be something more, not looking behind it for some uh, true meaning or purpose. And spiritual traditions have always kind of cultivated different technologies of of the self, as they're sometimes called, or techniques of ecstasy for making that possible. I also had something I wanted just to say and get back to this idea of despair. Uh, I might uh, I might be a bit provocative here, but in the tradition of Christian spirituality, which is what we were talking about, asceticism this idea of practicing in order to reform our habits. And the idea here is that you're supposed to get back to a kind of natural state, whatever that's supposed to mean, it's always very ambiguous. But the idea is to be more like the animals, the plants around you who effortlessly just just live, right? They don't care about their clothing or tomorrow or something. I mean, they're not apocalypticists, the plants, right? This idea is articulated in ways that actually talk about despair being not at all emphasized enough in whatever contemporary society that the mystics are writing from. So what I mean is that John Climacus, for instance, talks about the need to mourn continually, like all the time. And that the problem is that most monks, they sort of like, they do a bit of mourning every day to kind of reflect on their sins. And so on. And then they go about their day thinking, well, I did a jolly good job that morning of like confessing my sins and thinking that I'm a bad person. And then they sort of just go on that daily life. And Climacus says that you have to do this all the time. And the temptation is to think that you're done mourning, that you have kind of uh, repented enough. And I think uh, if we if we think in relation to contemporary environmental ethics and where we are in the discussion of the Anthropocene and the sort of the discourse that surrounds it, you know, modern, the contemporary West has like a great fear of, of, of anxiety as if it's something bad. And so the idea is like, how do we kind of cure the symptom and, and so on? Whereas maybe one way of thinking about it differently would be maybe we're not mourning enough. Like if we really took this seriously and we're really in grief about it, like, would we be able to do anything (laughs) right. Other than just, Mourn for it, really grieve, like true grieving is something we don't really do very much in the West anymore. You know, we don't really have multi day mournings for just an, a death of a human being anymore, right? And so, how are we supposed to really learn how to mourn for something as unimaginable as species extinction and a planetary kind of organic death? Perhaps we're not mourning enough. And so, uh, I love when we work together, Yerdis and I, on these ancient texts, it really kind of taking seriously some of the imperatives there and thinking like how kind of difficult they are to do today. To conclude, when secular critics talking about Christian theology and to environmentalism argue that theology has a kind of damaging effect on environmentalism by emphasising and hyping anxiety and distress, I think that it doesn't hype it up enough because the spiritual tradition of Christianity tells you to mourn all the time that this is not something that you can ever be like, rid of, right? And I think in relation to the issues we were talking about earlier, about kind of uh, recognizing Christianity's complicity in colonialism, for instance, and extractive ecologies and cultures, this is absolutely crucial. If we thought that, oh, there's a a kind of mourning period for that, like let's say a year, we're going to have a year of thinking about the ills that Christianity has done in relation to the planet uh, and its future. I mean, that's not a very, good way of thinking about it right uh, one year of mourning and then we're done um this is this is continual right so so yeah it, it's it's uh maybe we, we maybe we've not mourned enough here to see you want to
0: come in at this point
1: um if i just sort of um could jump uh, jump in again this is um why i find uh, kierkegaard so helpful here because for him despair always comes before the process of becoming an an authentic self. So um, Kierkegaard's work is absolutely not directed towards evading self or sort of evading despair or providing a cure for despair once and for all. And uh, in, in that way, I mean, uh, Kierkegaard doesn't say much about nature or, of course, not about um, climate change or climate uh, uh, despair, but I think he can be very helpful here in order to to, to embrace the, all these strong... Um, emotions that we are currently facing and all the difficult mental states that we are currently experiencing in the wake of the climate crisis. So this is actually something that we can use in order to take action in a sustainable manner that does not drive us into a paralyzing despair, but rather as a kind of kind of mobilizing effect on the agency of the self and also on the agency of our individual psyches in a way, sort of we we are um, can become sort of not only better ecological selves but also we can learn to lead um better existences in general as a person
0: so from what you were just saying, you know a lot of these discussion always focus on how we have to work on ourselves, uh, become better moral selves, become more attentive. And so it's always sort of a program of change for the individual. And I think in theory, a lot of people would probably agree with that, that we need to become better selves. But then change seems to be really difficult to come by in the sense that we just, you know, no matter how much we might agree in theory, we end up, you know, hurtling towards climate emergency with frightening speed. So why do you think that environmentalism and these ideas about moral change Um, are failing to actually achieve sort of lasting changes in, in how we conduct our lives. And does this failure have to do with, you know, the kind of ideals that environmentalism pursues?
2: Yeah, I'd say they have to do entirely with the ideals that environmentalism pursues and the operative metaphors that guide a lot of the discourse. So as we were talking about earlier, one of the main failures of environmentalism, I guess, is the idea that uh, there is such a thing as a kind of separate environmental discourse, but also that there are solutions. A solution-oriented thinking is precisely what got us into this mess. What I mean is that big big decision thinking The idea that you make war or you have peace, you invade some place, you extract something, move it somewhere else. This is big decision thinking, right? It's not localized thinking, it's not attentive to particular places, to communities and environments. This is thinking that is based on larger narratives bigger aims and goals for which the particulars must be sacrificed. This is science as big technology, the pursuit of knowledge at all costs, including the costs of lives of individual human beings, of individual creatures, places, cultures and so on. Right? Big decision thinking is what got us into this mess. When environmentalism uses that rhetoric, they are digging themselves into the mess. What it would mean to step back from that and slow thinking down, which is an expression that Isabel Stengers uses the idea of slowing thinking down. It's going to be a lot messier. It's not going to be efficient anymore. It's really difficult to sell that It doesn't sound very sexy. It's difficult to theorize it because it's to do with being attentive to particularities. There's no overarching grand theory of it because there's no big decision thinking right. That's why it's difficult to articulate it. And that's why environmental discourse pulls away from it, even though most environmental philosophers, if you read their work carefully, are all trying to say that the answers are not in the big answer thinking, right, but in attention to place. But how do you make that sexy? How do you sell that, right? And every time it, is, it becomes commodified as like nature writing or beautiful kind of um, landscape art, Again, we have a commodity, you have something that you can sell. So so it's really complicated because every time there is an articulation of it, the way it's presented becomes uh, its own fortress, as it were, captures that. So, yeah, I would say that is one of the main stumbling blocks, if you like.
0: Thank you for joining us for this latest episode on the intersections between religion and spirituality with man-made climate change if you enjoyed this episode don't forget to like our show and to subscribe to it on all the major podcast platforms for more information about this and previous episodes including recommended readings feel free to check out our website at interfaith.cam.ac.uk slash podcast